Green Chili Adventure Gear makes American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems that will turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage, any bag you have into motorcycle luggage. GreenChiliADV.com. I'm often fascinated by what can come from things that go wrong. You've probably heard stories of accidental discoveries like Silly Putty, penicillin, post-it notes, all stories about things that went wrong but end up being the catalyst for another great idea. Well, on this episode, we have the founder of the ADV Rider Forum. His name's Chris McCaskill. And Chris has a really interesting story that will take us from living on the street to university, from Steve Jobs to Jeff Bezos, and an uncomfortable trip to Mexico that he made on his motorcycle that ends up being the seed for the ADV Rider Forum. And there's a lot more in here, too. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Best Rest Products is where the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists comes from. It's called the Cycle Pump, made in the USA, has lifetime warranty. They also distribute the Google Tech filters for North America. The website, cyclepump.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts online. Shipping to your door from maxbmw.com. You also can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, a free newsletter, maxbmw.com. Well, you know, it's not even guesswork. It's a proven fact that you will get more miles from your chain by oiling it regularly. Here's what you got to look at. The MotoBreeze chain oiler. It's got no moving parts, got no electrical parts. It runs off of air pressure and it's got vacuum connections that take the oil down and deposit it onto a felt pad that goes directly onto your chain. An ounce of oil gets you a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers. MotoBreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. MotoBreeze.com. Uh, I've been obsessed with motorcycles for some reason. It's one of these things where I don't want to be obsessed by motorcycles, but I always have been ever since I was a a boy. So, you know, it's just always been that way. And, uh, And then I lost my mind and took this trip to Mexico on a motorcycle on a red BMW K1200 RS. Figured out as soon as I crossed the border, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, But for 11 days, I had the hell of an adventure. I started Adventure Rider because I didn't think I could take the years that it would take to ride around the world. I would be able to do occasional adventures for a week or two, something like that. And that's what I've been doing. Does that disqualify me for your show? (laughs) I am Chris McCaskill and I'm from Silicon Valley. And I started Adventure Rider, but I'm mainly a Silicon Valley geek. Chris, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much. Silicon Valley. Well, I'm sure everybody's heard of the Silicon Valley, but what is it like? What's it like where you live? So I live in a city called Mountain View on the southern end of the San Francisco Peninsula. And it's four miles from Google's headquarters and about six miles from Apple's and eight miles from Facebook's and just north of Adobe and Intel. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on here. So I made a career out of that. That's a lot of energy surrounding you. Yeah, it's funny. I went to Stanford, which is here um, within rollerblading, skateboarding distance. And, but I majored in geophysics, which strangely took me around the world. It was high adventure and I was 10 years in geophysics. But the stories of Steve Jobs sang to my soul. And when I was 37 years old, I I came to the Silicon Valley to try to get a job with Steve Jobs and I got it. I worked with him at Pixar and Next. And oh my God, you want to talk about the adventure of the lifetime. He loved motorcycles, by the way, especially BMWs. He had a taste for them. He put one in the lobby of Apple as just a beautiful thing, well-machined along with the grand piano. What was it like to work for Steve Jobs? Well, those were kind of dark days for him because he'd been exiled from Apple, he felt. And so he'd started this new company with high expectations, Next Computer. And he had nine founders. And in the first two years, 
um, maybe the third year, eight of them quit. Some of them rage quit. I was there for all of them. It was, it was awful because the computer didn't do as well as we thought it was going to do. And, uh, and Pixar had been struggling. He bought it from George Lucas and had been struggling for years and years and years. So Steve was really down and out. It's hard to remember how desperate times were back then. And I always wondered, why does he do this? You know, he, he doesn't need to do this. He could go live on a beach somewhere. He invented the Apple II he's, and the Mac, and he's worth $250 million. Why in the world did he put himself through this? And he hung in there and hung in there and hung in there until they finally made that movie, Toy Story, which launched Pixar after 15 years of failure. And uh, next got sold to Apple and drove the renaissance that became OS X and iOS and, and the iPod. Amazing. Yeah, those, those are two things that were really draining money from, weren't they? Pixar was just, he was pouring money into that. It was it was a loss, like you said, until they came up with Toy Story. And then the same as the, the Black Cube. Um, I remember hearing stories about that Black Cube, him spending forever trying to pick the right color black for the cube. That's true. That's true. Uh, well, I'll give you an example of what it was like. Um, so... Unix programmers in the day thought we were destroying Unix because we were putting a graphical user interface on it and dumbing it down for grandmas and it wasn't designed for that and what the hell did we think we were doing. So they were hecklers for Steve, really bad hecklers. And um, I got an invitation for Steve to keynote Unix Expo in New York at the Javits Center. So I approached Steve about it and he had one of his little tantrums about it. No, I'm not going. There's Unix weenies there and, you know, they'll scream and it'll be terrible. I'm, no, I'm not doing it. And I said, well, Scott McNeely, the year before the CEO of Sun drew 3,000 people. They think you'll draw 4,000, which is capacity. And he said, no, no, I'm not doing it. So I talked to the show organizer and they said, no, you don't understand. We're going to advertise it. And what's going to happen is the Unix weenies are going to not show up because it's Steve and um, the um, faithful, the Apple faithful want to see him again. So they're going to show up for his keynote. So tell him to come. So I talked to Steve and... We decided to fly him and his desk and his uh, machine out there. He was so picky. The desk had to be painted in the exact same paint chip of black with the same matte sort of finish as the machine was. And everything else had to match. And because the logo was tilted at 28 degrees, the desk had to be measured by protractor on the stage. I was down on my hands and knees measuring 28 degrees. So the desk was turned to the audience at 28 degrees. The monitor was turned to the desk at 28 degrees. The keyboard was turned to the machine at 28 degrees. And there was a single red rose with a vase on the machine. And then he, uh, back in the day, he dressed in, as it's hard to remember it, that he dressed in uh, sort of pleated pants and fancy white shirts and bow ties and vests and things like that. And he would stand in the back of the stage. I would introduce him in front of 4,000 people. And the spotlight had to follow him out and have him sit down as if he was a maestro sitting at a grand piano. And basically he was. I've never seen anybody who could demo like he could demo before or since. He's the best there ever was in the computer industry. There's no doubt. I mean, changed everything for presentations. I mean, look at all the companies now that sort of mimic what Apple does for uh, launching new products. Yeah, they try, but they're not Steve. Yeah, and I know, I know. Steve spent, he figured that it had a $1 billion PR impact so he would spend every afternoon a month in advance and in the evening and then the week in advance he was rehearsing in front of his employees and everything else. It was a big production. Wow. Well, well you sound a lot like a, a computer geek right now, but there's a, yeah. there's, a, there's a definite motorcycle side to you that started early on. Yeah, very early. I don't remember how early. I just remember I always was the kid, the little kid with pushing you know, tricycles around and wagons and everything else, anything that would roll. And then as a high school project in 1972, my physics teacher and I built an electric motorcycle, believe it or not, with lead acid batteries. It was a pig. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And um, as soon as I was able to get my driver's license, uh, a motorcycle license, I bought a um, Suzuki X6, the 250 and I subscribed to every motorcycle magazine and I had them in my bedroom stacked hip deep. And I memorized 
everything about every kind of motorcycle. I knew their CCs and bore and stroke and displacement and zero to 60 time and everything else. And but when something like the Kawasaki 500cc Mach 4 would come out, I'd be the first one at school to be able to tell everybody about it. It was, it was just so exciting. What is it about the motorcycle? I know you said you don't really know, but I mean, there must be something that gives you an indication, some sort of, did you see one when you were young? Your, your dad have one or something? No, my dad never had one and he tried to talk me out of them. Um, he said they caused back arthritis and that motorcycle policemen. <laughs> sorry, yeah. sorry. That's no, the, no, if that's the only concern, I think that's great. That's the only risk yeah. for motorcycles. No offense to your dad. <laughs> yeah, he just, he and my uh, stepmom didn't want me to have one. Uh, you know, I grew up very poor in Oakland um, and my real mom and I, she had, um, she was mentally ill. She had schizophrenia. So I was homeless for a while, for about three years, third, fourth and fifth grade. You wouldn't think a child could be homeless. Probably couldn't be nowadays, but back then we could stay out of sight. And anyway, uh, that's kind of where the Hells Angels were born. And I would just see these guys on their Harleys and think, badass, man. That's just, that's just so badass. And maybe that was it. I don't remember. How, how did you live homeless? Oh boy. What a story. You know, she had a master's degree from Cornell in cancer research and then schizophrenia struck her when she was 35, adult schizophrenia and pregnant wow. with me. So she had to go what was then called an insane asylum in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I lived with my grandparents until I was seven. Somehow she got out of there. The, the history of the family silent on it. She drove her car across the country and got to Oakland, I think because of the liberal mental illness laws in California where you can't be detained against your will for longer than 72 hours if, if you don't pose a threat to society. So and then she sent a telegram to my grandparents saying, send Christopher. And they put me on a TWA jet connecting in Chicago and I ended up with my mom. And she believed all the rhetoric of Senator McCarthy that's the problem with harsh political rhetoric is the mentally ill often believe it. And so she thought the communists were going to get us. We couldn't talk on the phone. She thought, you know, if I went to school, they would steal me that, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and in the meantime, she was getting fleeced by all the televangelists. So we had no money and couldn't pay for an apartment. And anyway, there were the communists. So uh, in third grade, she pulled me out of school and told me if the, truant officer ever catches you playing hooky from school, you'll go to San Quentin for life. And, you know, I knew she was insane, the word we used then, but that sounded like it could be true. I could get in a lot of trouble for playing hooky. So I just stayed out of sight in the day. We had hills, you know, to live in and, and parks and boxcar and the railroads, you know, and Catholic mission homes and abandoned sailboats, you know, wherever we could go. And you're living sort of with your mom? with my mom the whole time. I wouldn't be separated from her by more than a block. So you're just sort of moving from place to place as she sort of tries to get a grasp of things. Yeah. Yep. It was crazy. What happened to your mom? Well, uh, in the beginning of sixth grade, I shoplifted a sweater for her. I shoplifted a lot and I got caught at a department store and I had to go to juvenile hall and I don't know what happened. I had to appear in court a couple of times. I was terrified. I thought I was going to go to San Quentin. And they must have found my father, who I'd only met a couple of times before. I don't know if my mom, you know, it, it seems like she wouldn't have the courage to call the police or something, but I wouldn't identify myself in juvenile hall. So they must have gone on a search for what's going on. And I must have, I was filthy and they must have thought maybe I was homeless. Anyway, somehow they found my mom, committed her to an institution, and my father took custody of me in sixth grade. And then I tried tried to begin sixth grade um, without telling anybody that I'd missed those years of school, and that didn't work out so well for a while. Yeah. How do you, how do you sort of switch from living on the street to all of a sudden living in a normal home? Do you just try and forget what happened? I couldn't forget it because you get reminded every day. I spoke, I didn't know any white kids. Uh, apparently there were two others in my school in Oakland that I went to in second grade. And then all my friends, I only knew black kids. And so I spoke like a black kid from Oakland and I acted like a black kid from Oakland. And they were my best friends. I loved them. And when I got to this upper middle class neighborhood in Arinda, uh, where there were no black people at all, uh, they 
you know, the kids were into their clothes and their houses and, you know, education and things like that. And I just, just was reminded every day, you know, that I, I didn't fit in and I was born in Alabama. So I had a Southern accent on top of it, which was embarrassing. And so uh, there were a lot of years, it was, there were some tough years and I, I walked into sixth grade the first time after two weeks of class and the kids were doing times tables. Sometimes I was 56, nine times six is whatever. And so I, you know, I just looked and stared and thought, what are they doing? And in a few days, the teacher called me to, to go to the board and diagram a sentence. And I had no idea what she was talking about. So I drew a box around it. And when the class laughed, I ran out of the class and hid in a drainage culvert for the whole day and decided I wasn't going back to school again ever. And I was hoping they wouldn't tell my dad and maybe I could run away. Um, but when I got home, they had told my dad he was angry and my stepmom gave me a big hug. I was all ready to go hike across the hill and get lost in Oakland. I knew how to do it. I was going to run away. But the hugs that my stepmom gave me. So they put me in remedial, you know, special education. And the women who were in special education for those few years that I was in it, they are just angels. Oh, my gosh. I wish I could go back to them and thank them, including whoever my public defender was in juvenile hall, I'd give anything to go back to these people and thank them for all their kindness. But at the time I was more, you know, hysterical, I think. It's quite a, a change, uh, you know, to, to sort of, I mean, I mean, I guess what I'm, what I'm thinking here is you're so lucky really. Yeah. Because you, yeah. you were going down a path there that it would not end up where you are now. You know, I've met a lot of psychologists. I was just at a brain-mind conference at MIT last weekend. And, and, you know, they sometimes tell me we've never met the child of a schizophrenic who was able to recover as much as you have. It's a good thing, you know, you ended up in your step-parents' home in, in sixth grade and you were raised by your grandparents for a while. So you only had three or four years of that. That's probably the lucky part life is like this for everybody that, you know, you, uh, not like you've had, but I mean, like this, as far as you make certain decisions, you turn certain corners and that sets the course or at least the course for a little while of your life. There's probably an incident there, probably the one where you're, you're getting picked up and charged for shoplifting um, that had that not happened. Uh, like I said, you, you would have turned out a totally different thing. And, and this is the thing with life. Life is a lot to do with kind of luck, isn't it? You know, I can, I can tell you one of those incidents quickly. Um, I would, when I appeared in court the first time, I just stood there shaking and crying and looking down at my feet and I wouldn't tell the judge my name. And he was a big intimidating guy. If he was Darth Vader before there was Darth Vader banging on the table with a hammer and black robe and all that kind of stuff. Ugh. And it was just traumatizing. So this public defender took me back to my, what ended up being a private room in juvenile hall. Cause I was the only white kid and they didn't let black and white kids share rooms uh, back then. So I was all alone in this room and he would bring me books and that's just what I do. And then I had to appear in court again because I wouldn't tell him my name or anything the first time. And the second time when he, the judge was demanding it, th this is my sixth grade memory. So who knows how accurate it is. I, the thing I distinctly remember is I was so terrified I lost control of my bladder and wet my pants in front of everybody in the court. It was the most embarrassing thing I'd ever done. And then I just started screaming. I just couldn't stop screaming. I just uncontrolled screaming. And, and I don't know what happened after that. The only thing I can remember is I ended up in my dad's house, you know, with my new stepmom. And it's like, I can't, I just can't conjure anything from the moment I was screaming in that courthouse to, I, I ended up in Arenda. I don't know how long it was. I don't know anything. How long does it take you to get sorted out? I mean, you said you went into school and you, you had trouble getting by. I mean, you, you miss grades. So, I mean, you, you miss so much. You're just not up to speed, obviously, even just what you did with the blackboard there. But how many years did it take you to get caught up? Oh, <laughs> so, um, sixth grade was tough and so was junior high. Um, and here was the thing. My mom, said she memorized the complete works of Shakespeare. She had an unusual memory. I, I don't know, but she could go, she was drunk a lot because that's what schizophrenics do. They get into substance abuse. She would walk the streets of Oakland, creating a disturbance, screaming, you think your parents 
um, embarrassed you, I'd be about a block from her and I'd have to hear the Shakespeare, you know, Hamlet, is this a dagger which I see before me, the handle towards my hand, come, let me clutch thee. And she would say it at the top of her lungs. So when I got in high school, they started teaching Shakespeare in English and I just couldn't be there. I felt like I was in that courthouse again and I wouldn't tell anybody. I, you know, I just, I was too ashamed of that part of my background to ever tell a single soul ever, not my father and my stepmother. They had no idea. And other than I was in juvenile hall, I guess. And so I got D's in English because I just would find a way to be out of the class somehow. Um, and, uh, but I met a freshman, um, science teacher who had his face badly scarred from a chemical accident. And so all the kids made fun of him and they were a little bit afraid of him. They called him Mr. Sardonicus and things like that. And he and I bonded like just, it was just the greatest thing ever because here was this misfit, misfit all burned. And I was this kid who was still talking like a black kid and from Alabama and didn't really fit in and had gaps in my education and everything else and uh, no self-confidence or self-esteem. And, and he saw that and took me in and we just, and from that point on, I decided I was going to go into science and I got straight A's in science by my senior year in high school. I, I got third in the county on, um, the science and math tests. Um, but I still had that D in English. <laughs> so, uh, all D's in English. So I got accepted provisionally to UC Santa Barbara, went down there on my motorcycle and, um, um, I had to take bonehead English, English 1A, non-credit course in order to stay in the university. And I got an F because I couldn't be in the class when they talked about Shakespeare. So they let me repeat it. I got an F. They let me take it um, through UC Berkeley, pass, no pass. And I was the first student they ever saw who got a no pass. So they expelled me from the university. That was it. Uh, I was done. And I was so angry. I left there and went to Utah to be a counselor at a summer camp, swore I'd never be on another college campus as long as I lived. And when I got to this summer camp, they'd hired another counselor who was a woman who had just graduated in psychology. I mean, what are the odds? There's, there's, you know, what, 12 counselors, six women and six men. I'm one of the men. I'm 19. And here's this woman who's 21. And I just fall head over heels, suffocating breathlessly for her. And somehow she graduated from college without getting married. And we've been inseparable ever since. But if it weren't for her, she's the first one I ever told, uh, you know, about what happened. And I only told her bits and pieces cause I couldn't, just couldn't bear it. Um, and I thought she would drop me if she knew for sure. And I didn't tell her for until like we were engaged and I felt like I had to. So, um, but I don't know with, without that science teacher, Mr. Davis, without those remedial teachers, without the public defender, without a school bus driver I had, Without Tony, my wife, who I'd met in this crazy off chance, she convinced me to go back to college. She tutored me. I ended up being a graduate student at Stanford. <laughs> it was just crazy. It's just a crazy journey. All on a motorcycle. <laughs> that's, that's quite a story. The the, the motorcycle obsession, because you mentioned that you, you you knew every bike as it came out. You'd read the specs. You knew the born stroke of, of all the different bikes. Is is that part of maybe the, the growing up? I mean, this, this is something you can control. This is something you can study that you can be an expert at. Probably. Yeah, that's probably it. I, I was thinking that earlier as I was describing this story. I was the expert. Nobody exceeded me when it came to knowing everything about motorcycles or riding them. I could do anything on a motorcycle and, and I was just free on a motorcycle. And yeah. And he, even when I, when I was at Stanford, I bonded with another professor who's been friends of mine for life. He had an old Honda 160 dream, you know, the black ones with the, the big curvy, um, fenders in it back in his back shed with a ripped seat and everything else. And, uh, when I asked him about it, he said, Oh yeah, I, I need to junk that sometime. And I said, well, I'll take it. And he gave it to me. And I rode that the whole time I was at Stanford, saved me a lot of money because we were broke back then. It was great. Love that bike. Has the motorcycle been your transportation pretty much your whole life? Yeah. My wife and I both like to ride them. Uh, and, you know, for short trips around town, I often take a skateboard. Um, sometimes I take my mountain bike. I also like bicycling. 
I like mountain biking an awful lot, almost as much as motorcycling. And, um, uh, she rides, I bought her, uh, whenever they came out 10 years ago or something, a Honda big ruckus, you know, the yellow ones with the dual headlights in the front Mm -hmm. for Christmas. And I hit it around the block somewhere and she thought, Oh no, when he buys me some surprise, it's something I don't want. (laughs) And she went, went around the corner with the whole family trailing and saw that and lit up and she's been glued to it ever since. So that's all she rides and she's a granny now. So we have this white haired granny riding all over Silicon Valley on a Honda big ruckus with a huge thing on the back. So she can go to Costco and load up. And you have a a sidecar now. Yeah, I have a Ural and I love that bike. It's, uh, I have it because we have 13 grandkids and we have a dog and 13 uh, 13 grandkids. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? How do you do that? I don't know. I just, it just must be accidents or something. It just happened. Yeah. That's a big family. So you're saying the sidecars is in part due to that. Yeah. So, uh, we can fit three grand girl. They're mostly grand girls. We can fit three grand girls in the sidecar and one behind me and go around the neighborhood and everybody gets these huge smiles. <laughs> so where do you go from, from your motorcycle obsession in high school to the point where you start ADV rider? Well, so that was interesting. Um, I got a, job out of college as a geophysicist. And that means you travel around the world and it's very high adventure. You're on offshore platforms and you're in the North shore of Alaska on helicopters. You're in the Rocky mountains or the plains of Argentina or something. You're in crazy places that nobody goes, uh, doing seismic surveys, looking for oil. And it was actually pretty hazardous. My family didn't like it. Um, I was in Bogota, Colombia and there was a big strike and I was locked behind bulletproof glass for 11 days. And so I missed Halloween. And when I got home to Houston, which we didn't love living in, I, my kids sat me down and said, you know, Papa, um, this is crazy. You, you need to get a job where go into the computer industry. Then we can identify with what you do. We can't identify with geophysics, work for Steve Jobs. I, my oldest son was obsessed with Steve Jobs in seventh grade. He did a book report on Steve Jobs while all the other kids in Houston did book reports on athletes or presidents. And um, so at age 37, we packed up a U-Haul truck and I drove out to Silicon Valley without a job and started applying. And Steve was the kind of guy who would hire unusual people with unusual backgrounds. And, and he did it with me. So, uh, so what happened was the, uh, the towers collapsed in New York City and I happened to be there and I was close by looking at it out of a um, uh, skyscraper window. It could only happen to me, I think. And so I wandered down to watch the emergency vehicles coming and going and CNN doing their coverage and the yellow tape roped off and everything else. And uh, some policeman asked me if I would volunteer at the triage center and they had brought in Oh my God, 4,000 body bags and everything else. And I don't know what they had intended for me to do, but I'm six, four and you know, I don't know how he picked me out of the crowd, but he did and led me to the triage center. And it's it just, it's, it's the craziest thing you've ever seen. So I went into shock that day and had to stay in New York for eight days. And I didn't feel like working or anything. And, uh, and when I got home, I just decided I just needed an escape valve and I had a shiny red BMW K 1200 RS four cylinder water cooled. And I thought, Oh, I'm a heck of a motorcyclist. I want to ride through Mexico and I don't care if I'll ever die. And cause that was the mindset I was in, even though I had four teenagers at home and it was just crazy. So, um, I arranged for my wife to fly down to Puerto Vallarta and meet me there. And she was going to ride on the back for six days as we went down to Acapulco and Belize and places. And, and I was going to drop her off at Monterrey on the way back um, and then do the slab up to El Paso and back. And it was going to be 11 days. That's the time I thought I had. And as soon as I set off and I was riding through Arizona, she let me know she had some stomach issues and she wanted me to continue, but I'd have to continue without her. So I did. And it, for me, it was the trip of a lifetime, but crossing that border and, you know, realizing that it wouldn't even clear the topes, the speed bumps without bashing the bash plate and trucks were hot on my heels. And, 
the roads were rough and, and it had been raining. It had been raining really heavily. And um, so the potholes were pretty full. And I saw this pothole, but I didn't imagine it to be as deep as it was. So my front wheel dropped into the really deep down into the pothole, probably up to the hub or something like that. And it, as I recall, it bashed the bash plate on the way down um, with a big clang. And then just trying to get it up to the other side. I did it all in one thing, but it was a steep climb up the other side. And then the bash plate hit again really hard. And uh, I listened to one of your episodes the other day about mistakes people make when they travel internationally and it's packing too much, mm -hmm. everyone said. And uh, that wasn't my mistake. I, I just had a top case on the back and I had a just a few things in there. But my Jivy top case popped open. I guess the bounce was so violent or something. Um, it popped open and I didn't know that. And it dumped half my stuff, I, presumably back in that pothole. And it wasn't until I'm driving down the road and uh, some Mexicans were pointing out the window at my top case that was open. I had to look behind me and see that I lost a lot of my stuff. And uh, so I went back there and closed it. But that was kind of a wake-up call. And then after that, you know, there were just a lot of rough roads. And and I just thought, oh, my gosh, what have I done? Taking a shiny red street bike into, you know, roads like this. I'm an idiot. So it's not so much your, your skill level. It's what you feel like is you're on the wrong bike. Yeah, I had ridden up and down the coast highway all the time um, on weekends. One of my favorite things to do was Friday after work at six o'clock here in Mountain View. I would ride down to the Hearst Castle and stay at a hotel down there all on Highway 1. And I'd stay there till nine o'clock. It was my night off or it would take me till nine o'clock to get down there and I'd stay in a motel. It was my night off. And then early in the morning, I'd come roaring back up the coast highway and join the family at nine o'clock on Saturday morning. And, uh, it just became, you know, a ritual or I'd go North, you know, I took my daughter once on the back of that thing up to Oregon and back up the coast highway and down over Mount Lassen and all that. I had done that in high school too. Um, I'd taken my Suzuki X6 up the central Valley and over Mount Lassen with a guy on the back, a classmate of mine, um, all the way up to whatever the little town is at the top of highway one near Oregon. And, uh, Back down Highway 1, we, uh, I don't know, we did four or five days that way together on that little teeny bike, bottom of the suspension several times. And uh, uh, so I'd been doing a lot of that and I'd never had a wreck or anything. So I thought, yeah, I know what I'm doing <laughs> until I crossed the border. Well, so you, you started thinking about other kinds of bikes at this point. Now, you were mentioning that you knew about all the all the bikes that were out. Were there not any dual sports that sort of showed up on your radar when, in your, your bike um, research that you've done? Yeah, the BMW GS. Um, but I had had an RS 1100, um, also a street bike that was an oil head. And it was one of the first years of the oil heads and they surged badly in those days. And I just didn't like the surging and the transmission went out on it. I mean, it just was catastrophic failure in the transmission. And then the hydraulic cylinder leaked all over the tank and spoiled the paint. And I just got a taste in my mouth about them. So I had seen some of the airhead ones, uh, and I, re I really liked the look of them, especially when they were, you know, yellow and black and looked badass. Um, so I thought about those, you know, R80, whatever GSs. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, but I had, you know, my K1200 RS, by that time, I'd gotten used to four cylinders and liquid cooled and super smooth and super powerful. And I just wanted more power. So the, I think the GS is back then in 2001, uh, I think they were 1150s, weren't they? And so they, they had the power, um, but they were pretty heavy for off-road. And that surging was just a deal killer for me. So the only other one I knew about was the Triumph Tiger. And I thought about that a lot because three cylinders, water-cooled, um, but I, I'd heard they were in those days a little bit fragile. There was a rumor that that KTM was coming out with a LC8, which was a V-twin, and it wasn't going to be a single cylinder, And but they weren't out with it yet. So, And I hadn't kept up with motorcycles as much by that time as I had before because I had a busy career and kids. Um, so when I got back uh, after those 11 incredible days, um, I started looking around for 
information about these bikes on motorcycle magazines, you know, reviews and things like that, but they weren't people who had actually taken them around the world. And I was anxious to ride up to Alaska as the next adventure and up the Alaska highway. And I knew that could be pretty rough too. And I, I didn't want to take the K 1200. So, um, uh, and people were advising me against the triumph. They were saying, yeah, the, the GS is still surge. I did see Horizons Unlimited site and I liked it a lot and have a lot of respect for Grant and Susan. Uh, but those were really hardcore around the world riders and and I was sort of BMW averse at the time. So uh, I bought a server and with the help of one of my teenage sons just set up a message for him and called it Adventure Rider on a Lark and opened it for business. And there was a, a BMW GS mailing list, Micah Peak. And I started meeting guys on there and inviting them to Adventure Rider. And that's how the whole thing started. When you're doing this, you're thinking, were you thinking it's an investment or you're thinking you're starting something like a, in a philanthropic sort of way or like, what did you think you're going to get from it? Just a fun hobby. Just a side thing. Just something to do to sort of connect with motorcycling more. Yeah. Yeah. I always loved motorcycling. So I got to talk to other motorcyclists. I wanted to talk to people who actually owned them and who actually rode on them. Did they vibrate? What was... Did you get buffeting, you know, from the wind? Did they break down? Could you fix them yourself? You know, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so um, that's all I was thinking. It was just, it was just my state of mind at the time was, you know, I I just was burned out and I just wanted something fun to do to take my mind off it. ADV rider, that was 2001, right? Mm-hmm. So in 2001, what was the use of the term adventure riding? I don't think there was, uh, I don't remember it. I think, I think, um, um, Chris Scott, who wrote, uh, the adventure motorcycling handbook, I, I think he's sort of been credited with coining that phrase adventure motorcycling, but I'm not sure when it was published. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I've always wondered about that. Um, because at the time I didn't take it seriously and everything's a remix, you know, as you know, and you don't know where you heard. And, and I didn't give it a lot of thought. It just, I'd had an adventure. And so I just, and I didn't want to name it after some kind of motorcycle because it seemed like most of the sites were around some brand, you know, KTM or Kawasaki or Harley or something like that. And, uh, so I called it adventure rider and then put as the top, um, sub forum ride reports. And I'm very, uh, oriented towards photos. I love photos, cameras and all that kind of stuff. So we had this mantra picks or it didn't happen. And, at the, in the day in 2000, you had to have a film camera and scan it, you know, to post them up there. That's what I was doing in the beginning. And, um, but people did it and they uploaded their photos and they told about their trip reports. And, uh, I wrote about my Mexico report and so on. And, uh, and that was my way to live vicariously through other writers because, and I think that's part of what I was thinking is I just love this and I don't get to do it as a, career full time and I can't leave my wife and kids. And so, um, so I get to live vicariously through everyone else. And then we had a BMW GS sub forum and that followed with a KTM sub forum and then a thumpers one and so on. So we could talk about, you know, bikes too, but Oh, on the adventure rider thing. So what's interesting is uh, I didn't think much about it, just called it Adventure Rider. But then BMW came out with this, you know, they named their premium bike the Adventure some years later. And I thought, huh, I wonder if there's a connection there. Um, and then KTM named theirs Adventure. And I thought, huh, this could, you know, <laughs> and then it became this whole category of bikes. And now it seems to be the most popular category. Everybody's got to have an adventure bike, even Ducati and even Harley. Well, it so. makes you wonder if, if it's motorcycling that started or somewhere else, because nowadays they've got, you know, adventure shopping, adventure vacations. I mean, there's adventure everything yeah. nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's a word. I mean, it could be just a mindset. It, it could be the um, the baby boomer generation that this maybe done it as, you know, as the baby boomers started to age, um, they're looking for things. And I know, uh, you know, tourism, uh, adventure tourism became a big thing for a number of years there because of the baby boomers looking for just that adventure, looking for yeah. something to do in life. Yeah, could be. 
going to take a quick break to thank a couple of sponsors to help bring this episode to you. But stick around because when we come back, we're going to talk about just what kicked off the ADV Rider Forum. And then the two moderators that helped kick it off, well, they get kicked off. And there's more after that. Stay with us. Well, it's getting quite warm here on the coast and I'm doing a lot of local riding, short trips, uh, plenty of playing and skills practice. And guess what I'm wearing on my feet? Well, obviously boots, but I mean under those, I'm going to tell you, it's Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly's is the official sock for Adventure Rider Radio. That's my choice um, because I am so stoked about them. Uh, We had Duke Lambert, the owner of Pearly's, on a while back and that's how we met, uh, heard his story and then I got to try or I tried the socks first. Anyway, these are the best cold weather socks I've ever had. As a matter of fact, these are the best socks that I've ever had. Now, let me put that into context too, because I've spent my whole life doing things in the outdoors, all kinds of things in the outdoors. I spent 20 years or almost 20 years as a wilderness guide guiding people so that you're doing it for a living and you need good quality gear. In all that time, I have not come across a better quality sock. They're warm in the cold weather. They cushion my feet. And even so far this spring, as things warm up and it's getting quite warm, like summertime temperatures right now, I'm still wearing them because... They're comfortable. They're very, very soft on my feet and they protect me from abrasion, you know, with the boots. So um, your feet deserve it too. Get Pearly's Possum Socks. Oh, by the way, they're made of a blend of uh, possum hair and merino wool, which turns out to be an amazing combination. I knew about merino wool from outdoor stuff, but the possum hair is new to me. The combination is incredible. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. And don't forget to mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Anytime you talk with them, Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. So the other day I popped into the dealership, you know, to look at bikes. Not that I had any intention of buying anything. <laughs> you know, you've done it. But as I'm looking at the bikes, it, this jumps out at me. You know, I, I look at the bike and I think it's a really nice bike, but it's got this wimpy stock foot peg. And I'm thinking, man, if I was to buy this bike today, the first thing I would do is put an order into IMS and order a set of foot pegs. I run them on my bike now. And uh, to, to look at the foot pegs from IMS in the box, they look stunning. The The, the craftsmanship is incredible. But I wouldn't have thought they would have changed my ride as much as they did. And they really have. Have a look at what they've got. They've got a full line of adventure pegs. IMSproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here from Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. So with ADV Rider, what was it that made ADV Rider take off? I mean, because there's other forums out there. As you mentioned, there was there's forums out there that are um, named after the motorcycle that people are interested in. But what was it about ADV Rider? Was it what just one of those things again, serendipity? You know, um, I always had the feeling that I wanted to be entertained. I wanted it to be edgy and entertaining and fun. Um, I later uh, sort of became strange friends with Jeff Bezos. And he used to say the only problem in life is to be ignored. And so with Adventure Rider... I was attracted to moderators in the beginning who were just characters, entertaining, crazy, fun people. So there was a guy who used a screen name Fish, um, and he'd been thrown off various different forums, a BMW RT forum. And there was Crash, and the way he spelled it was a small C and capital R and small A and capital SH, and he was crazy. And um, so they were the first two moderators and they were very entertaining. And in the beginning, we chose moderators who were entertaining and we tried to use entertaining, brief language, you know. Um, So, uh, for example, uh, we have a subform for vintage motorcycles, but rather than name it something boring, we named it old school. But the way we spelled it was O-L-D apostrophe S space C-O-O-L. And, uh, we called people inmates. Um, and we did that because fish and crash were so crazy and have been thrown off various other places that people said the inmates have overrun the asylum. So we called it the asylum and inmates, um, the, uh, number of posts you had became odometer and people look at that and think it's a typo because we spell it O D D. O M E T E R. And uh, yeah, so that's what we did. You know, I thought you were going to just tell me this, this story of basically putting it up there and then it sort of grew on its own, but this is something you've no. worked at. You, you've put a lot of time into this. 
and thought. Oh, I put a lot of time in. Yeah, a lot of time and thought. So to give you an example, we couldn't get much traction in the beginning. So I decided I had to write editorial content. So I did book reviews. I did motorcycle reviews. We had different sections, bikes, books, gear, um, and all that kind of stuff. And I wrote those reviews for a couple of years. And then I liked photography so much, I would curate the f- best photos from the site and I would put those on our homepage and they would rotate through uh, a slideshow. Um, and then <clears throat> I think we probably have 50 moderators now, something like that. Um, some of them more dedicated than the others. And I was sort of the head mod and determining you know, the, the, the hard calls that you have to make, um, like eventually banning crash and fish, which turned out to be hard, um, because they turned out to be too controversial in time. We began to like moderators who had very level heads. They didn't have to be that interesting. The inmates were interesting enough as they were, they're motorcyclists. So your two original moderators turn out to get the boot. I mean, they're, they're, they're people who help build you up and, and sort of keep things in place, but they're too, they're too wild. Yeah. And that was really hard. Uh, I can't tell you how hard that was. So it created a big, big drama. And I was kind of a public enemy for a while there. Was this a, um, a money maker? Was there some way that it was generating some income for you as, as you're building it up? Well, that's the funny thing is <clears throat> I was off work. Uh, I had left my previous job when the towers collapsed um, and my son was trying to get me to join his company, which was a gaming company. And I didn't understand gaming and I didn't understand the business model and everything else. And it was 2002 and nobody was funding those kinds of companies then. Um, And I was reluctant on whether to do it or not. Um, But in the meantime, ADV Rider had a real big technical problem, which was the images that people were uploading were bogging the site down and costing us a lot of money storage in those days was very expensive and, and forums were not good at handling images at the time. So the gaming software that Don had, uh, had photo galleries as part of it. And I pitched the idea, well, what if we sold photo galleries to people for $30 a year and they get to put their photos up there and they can link them and display them in the forum or a blog? No one does that on the internet now, but it seems like something people are going to want, especially as digital cameras come along and all that. So we did that and he wanted to call the company Smug Mug. So we named it Smug Mug and uh, we would charge $30 a year. (laughs) We only got five subscriptions the first year and we had to scramble up slow building at first. Uh, But pretty soon people started to do it. And especially on ADV Rider, the inmates started to buy these Smug Mug accounts and host their images there so that they could post them on ADV Rider. And, um, um, as smug Monk started to grow, <clears throat> it started to take all my time and now it's, oh, it's, you know, 160 employees, I think. And, um, Don went out and bought Flickr, you know, the big photo sharing site. So he owns that now as part of smug Monk. So it's, it's become, you know, a, a really, uh, fairly big business. So we just threw ADV Rider into the data centers of, um, smug Monk. And eventually on Amazon, AWS, and that's how we got to know Jeff Bezos. And we didn't have to run ads for 10 years. We just had no um, business model other than it referred people to SmugMug to buy photo sharing accounts. And I don't know how many accounts we got that way, but thousands and thousands. So we figured that was, we didn't, weren't measuring, weren't counting, but we figured that was good enough. And then after 13 and a half years, I left smug mug to do something else. And they didn't want <laughs> ADB Rider in the data centers anymore. They're afraid it was a security concern, which I could understand, um, among other things. So, um, we pulled it out and then we had to run ads. And so now we have somebody who runs ADB Rider commercially. He oversees all the ads. His name, David Rudolph, I think you talked to him mm-hmm. and, uh, he'd run commercial forums before he hired an editorial director, we hired a couple of writers. We have a guy who keeps the site up and running. So it's a team of five and it all has to be paid for by either subscriptions if you don't want to see ads or ads. And uh, it doesn't seem, you know, to have changed the the tone of it as far as I can tell. And sort of like when Instagram started to run ads, people said they would leave and 
that would be that, but they, they stayed. So where's it going? Where's ADV rider heading in, you know, in the next five, 10 years sort of thing? Oh, it's a good question. Um, we, um, a lot of forums have done what we're doing. We're kind of following them. Um, uh, there was, there's, there's a forum called slow twitch. That was just a forum about triathlon and that I hung out on a lot. And, uh, Dan Enfield, the owner started writing articles with reviews of bicycles and he would take sponsorships and so on. And it turned into his livelihood and his business because the articles themselves, you know, draw a lot of attention and he could hire an editorial director and some writers and things like that. So it became <clears throat> sort of an m- online magazine with a forum component. And uh, we saw a lot of them go that way. Ours Technica, the technical site did the same thing. So that's what we did. And we, the more circulation it gets, the more sponsors it draws, the more we can do things that you couldn't do with just a forum. We've talked about your childhood and, and how things change there. And, and then you, you start ADV Rider on a Lark. Then you went and started Smug Mug and that became a success. Um, how much luck is here and, and what else a is lot. there? <laughs> but I mean, okay, but I mean, how, who, who gets lucky like this this many times in a lifetime? Oh, I don't know. The thing that I'm doing now, I'm, I've had my lower lip out for a few days because I'm feeling unlucky. <laughs> but, and have, the way I look at it is I say, well, I've started these five things. First was a geophysical company with my professor, PSI, and we lucked out and it got bought by a bigger company and I was able to buy a home in the area and everything. It was just, it was really lucky. Um, and then I did this uh, company called Fat Brain Books and we lucked out and found the right investor and they joined the board and they helped us grow it. And it grew from zero to a hundred million in four years. And we went public on the NASDAQ and, and it got bought by Barnes and Noble in the day when people thought real companies had bricks. Um, they weren't like Amazon that, which was going to go poof like Webvan did. So we got lucky. And, um, and then with Smug Mug, I just feel like breaks came at the very point when I thought it was going to die, like in 2006, we just had too much spinning media, the, the, these disk arrays in Silicon Valley data centers, and they were drawing all kinds of power and floor space and everything else. And it, I just thought we can't afford these. It's too much capital expenditure, too much power. People aren't going to pay enough to pay for all this. And then we got this crazy call. Um, so, my son Don and I went to what's called a foo camp. O'Reilly Media had this camping outdoor thing in their headquarters on the lawn. You brought a tent and so on. And while we were there, uh, Jeff Bezos was there and he had, you know, had grown Amazon pretty impressively by that point. Uh, and he mentioned something about them wanting to talk to us about a biz dev sort of thing. And so fine, I gave him my number and he called or uh, he had his, uh, one of his VPs call and they wanted me to sign a non-disclosure and the whole thing. And it's like, what? Um, They're very impressed with Don, my son, Don, he's always been very geeky and Jeff and Don look a lot alike, very much alike. They play cards in the evening together. They both have shaved heads. They're both slender. Um, Jeff uh, will sometimes take Don's smug mug badge and put it on him and take his Amazon badge and put it on Don and it fools the press sometimes. And Don has to answer questions for Amazon. He's on their advisory board for AWS. So he knows a lot of the answers. And Jeff knows a lot of the answers about SmugMug because the company's close and, um, and he can answer questions there. So is this bizarre relationship? Anyway, they're going to call us about whatever this biz dev thing is. And I'm reluctant. It was 2006 and I'm worried sick about you know, going bankrupt over disk storage and all that. And this guy on the phone after we signed the NDA says, we're going to offer this new service um, uh, for storage. And we'd like to talk to you about storing your photos, all the photos you have on SmugMug in the cloud. And it's like, you're doing what? You're taking your data centers for your retail store, your bookstore? And you're going to make that available to people to 
rent computer time and disk storage and all that. Uh, yeah, he says, we're calling it triple S simple storage solution. And, uh, and here's how much we're charging 50 cents per gigabyte per month. And it's like, well, I don't know what that means. I have to translate that. Um, but really you could you store as much as we have? Well, how much do you have? And I said, 60 terabytes. And I thought that was the largest number in the world and it would blow them away. And they'd say, never mind. Oh no, we can handle 60 terabytes. That, that wouldn't be hard for us. And, uh, well, I find out later that he had been cold calling because they couldn't get any takers and he'd gone deep down the list and got the smug mug. And so Don and I went up to the bedroom. We were working out of my house at the time and spreadsheeted it out. 50 cents per gigabyte, five Oh was way too much because it was costing us about one five cents per gigabyte. So it's triple our costs to have these expensive you know, rotating medias. So I didn't bother to call him back and he started bugging me. And three days later I called him back and said, it's just, I can't do, you know, five Oh cents. We just can't afford it. And anyway, telling our customers that we're storing their priceless photos that they, we can never lose at a bookstore. I mean, what is that? And so he went back to Jeff and Jeff came back and said, I don't care what it costs to get in this business. Let's do it. If they're getting it for 15 cents, let's give them the price of 15 cents. And that became Amazon's official price. And then I said, well, we'll never use you as primary storage, but we could use you as backup and just not tell our customers. So we used them as backup for the first year and they were so good. They were so much better than we were. They had no outages and had low latencies and everything else. And uh, so we finally got rid of our initial storage. Don and I had a garage sale. We had a, we made a lemonade stand with a banner saying, you know, everything must go. We're shipping everything to Amazon. And uh, I have a photo of that. It's kind of classic. <laughs> I don't understand why Amazon wanted you to begin with. Why do they want you as a customer? Just to showcase somebody is a, a large customer? I don't think we were large enough to really be a good showcase customer. I think it was, they uh, saw that we had a lot of storage and they couldn't convince Shutterfly to do it, who had more storage than us. So, and they couldn't convince Flickr to do it because they were owned by Yahoo and they had their own data centers. So they just went down the list and got to us. And they, I think they were just looking for people who had a lot of storage and that was photo sharing. Mm, somebody to start the cash flow coming in for the, for the program. Yeah. I assume you're extremely goal orientated. I am. Yeah. Um, but I, for some reason, I I feel like the best entrepreneurs are like Steve, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and so on, who have this unreasonable optimism that it's going to work out. They can make it work out. They can will it. They can go to whatever depth they need to. They they will not fail. They will make it work. <clears throat> and I don't have a, that to the same extreme. I I get anxious at night and wake up in a cold sweat and think, oh, I don't know. And so I left next before I thought it was going to fail because I thought it would be so sad. And I left Pixar before I thought it was going to fail because I thought it'd be so sad. And Steve pulled it out. That's the difference. And that's what makes Steve in the pantheon of Edison and Ford and Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world and Elon Musk, who he is. They, it's just, in my opinion, they're one in a billion people who somehow think I can make this work against all odds. Well, I'm sure a lot of riders have searched at one time for an, or another for some sort of uh, question they had about their motorcycle and come up with the ADV rider website. There's just a, a load of information. The, one of the, yeah. the things that, you know, that I think are a real asset to what you have there um, are the people who've taken the time to break things down, saying this is how I adjust the valves on this particular bike, break it down, put in the photographs, put in the step-by-step -step procedure. There's just a load of information there that really can't be found anywhere else. Yeah, I hear that a lot. I hear it from stranded riders and, and they'll be off in Uruguay or someplace like that and their clutch explodes and, you know, they're eight days waiting for parts to come by FedEx, but they have the complete instructions of how to replace the clutch on ADV rider and contact with other riders so they can get help and things like that. And it does me world of good. I mean, that wasn't planned. It was just, that just happened. That's that luck you talked about. Chris, it was great to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, sorry it wasn't more motorcycling. Too much Steve Jobs and not enough motorcycling. 
vocalist Chris McCaskill from his home in Silicon Valley. The ADV Rider Forum is where you'll find out more about Chris and where he hangs out. And they're doing all kinds of things lately, writing loads of articles about everything to do with adventure motorcycling. Their website, advrider.com. just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. A special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. And of course, to you, the listener, thank you very much for listening. Drop by our website to check out all the episodes of Adventure Rider Radio. And don't forget, we do ARR Raw, too, once a month. So if you're not subscribed to that, well, you have to subscribe separately to get that show. Drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com. We've got it all right there. Also, we're looking for your support. We have built this on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. We need you in there. Drop by the website and click on the support button, adventureriderradio.com. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name's Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Glenn Hickstead from strikingviking.net and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 